Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes, your host for this episode of ASRM Today. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Antonio Lamarca. Dr. Lamarca has been on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic as cases continue to grow in Europe. Dr. Lamarca continues to work in the reproductive medicine space with other professionals who are looking for solutions in these perplexing times. Dr. Lamarca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So please tell us a little bit about yourself. What is your specialty and where do you practice? Yes, yes. Well, as you said, my name is Antonio Lamarca. I'm 48 years old. I uh, graduated in uh, medicine in 1996 and specialized in obstetrics and gynecology in uh, 2001 at the University of Siena in Italy. I then obtained a PhD in germ cell biology from the same university, and I'm currently professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Modena and Reggio Emilia in Italy. My main area of interest has always been reproductive medicine and surgery. During my 20 years now of experience have been widely involved in the clinical organization of programs for gynecological endocrinology, preconceptional counseling, IVF programs, endoscopic surgery and fertility preservation. In addition to this, I coordinate a research group made up of residents, fellows, and one post PhD. We deal with clinical research mainly focused on women's health, and we also have one uh, a basic research laboratory where we conduct studies on the biology of reproduction. As a research team, we are responsible for several institutional research projects assigned on a competitive basis. And we conduct a pretty good number of phase two and phase three clinical trials in the field of obstetrics and gynecology, mainly in reproductive medicine. When did things begin to change due to the COVID pandemic? Well, yes, in the middle of January, uh, the news uh, that the new coronavirus emerged in China was uh, globalized by the WHO. And Italian newspapers and media were giving daily a large space to the news coming from China. Very soon, it was clear that COVID-19 was not the flu as many experts were suggesting at the time. We understood this when China put the population in lockdown and built hospitals fully dedicated to this disease. I think many of us in reality, at least at the beginning of the story, were thinking that the SARS-CoV-2 infectivity was probably very similar to the previous two coronaviruses, namely SARS and MERS. In reality, SARS spread only in South Asia, and the total number of affected people is close to 10,000. MERS was more or less limited to Saudi, with few thousands of affected people. The SARS-CoV-2 had relevant, important mutations, and because of these mutations, well, its infectivity is much higher than the other two new coronaviruses, and so this virus can spread everywhere. In the second half of February, we had the first cases in the northern Italy, in Lombardy. And soon after the first cases, the virus has spread all the northern regions of Italy and then within the entire country. Yesterday, the total number of cases in Italy 
was close to 200,000 with more than 20,000 deaths. Of course, authorities uh, implemented restrictive measures during this epidemic to mitigate the infection. After just a couple of days from the case number one, there were already hundreds of cases and 11 towns were closed. Mm. Following the, the expansion of this infection, the area of limitation of human activities was extended to different northern regions and from the 9th of March to the entire country with all citizens being placed in lockdown. Since then, everything is closed. Close, close, school, uh, schools are closed, um, shops, restaurants, um, public parks, everything is closed and the mobility of people almost completely inhibited. From the 21st of March, all non-essential productive activities shut down. The lockdown firstly scheduled to lift on April the 3rd has now been extended to May the 3rd. So the total duration of this lockdown in Italy is expected to be two months. What has been the biggest surprise then for you in this pandemic professionally? Well, as you may imagine, uh, this pandemic created a state of emergency in a very few days. Uh, when Italy was hit, the only example we had was China. So we only had a few unclear news that were coming from a country with a, uh, an organization which was very different from that of Western countries. Well, in its early stage, the COVID-19 crisis in Italy looked nothing like a crisis. I think at the beginning, politicians did not have clear ideas of what was really happening here. I can remember in late February, some Italian politicians in Milan were making the point that the economy should not panic and not stop, please, because of the virus. In reality, similar reactions were repeated across many other countries besides Italy. At the beginning, the Italian government dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic by increasing, gradually increasing the lockdown areas, what we call the red zone, red zone areas, which were then expanded until they applied to the entire country. I think that maybe here we could have done better. I mean, Italy followed the spread of the virus rather than prevented it. On the contrary, I must say that the response of the national health system was prompt, effective, and represents nowadays an example for all countries facing this problem. The clinical activity of hospitals in Italy has been largely revised and modified just in a few days. The priority was for urgent emergent activities related to the treatment of COVID-19 patients. There has been a great potentiation of intensive care units. The total number of IQ beds in February was more or less 5,000. Nowadays, it is more than 7,500. So an increase by 50% in just few weeks. This is a very great response from our very efficient national health system. The key points for uh, the plan of our national health system were heart elective surgeries to transform operating rooms into IQs, upgrade semi-intensive care beds into full intensive care, recruit specialists in training and retired doctors. So we had 
thousands of doctors that applied to go back to the hospital fighting the virus to identify COVID-dedicated hospitals for low risk or recovering patients. All these procedures are the keys now for an efficient program, program against the virus. I was very positively impressed by the reliable and efficient response of our health system to this pandemic. Based on that, are there any lessons that you're learning right now that you will take forward in the future? Well, I would say that humanity has learned a good number of lessons this time. Well, in the case of pandemic, we need to urgently save lives, but also improving the way we respond to outbreaks in general. We have learned that the world needs to accelerate work on the development of treatments and vaccines for new viruses. We need a completely new system that can deliver research and develop vaccines and test and approve them very, very quickly. And also that can deliver millions or billions of doses within just few months after the outbreak of new viruses. We need better plans to respond more efficiently and effectively when an epidemic arrives. We need to invest in disease surveillance and to create universal views for all countries in the world to correctly and timely share information. In other words, we need a universal disaster plan for the next pandemic. That's the most important lesson, I think. What then is your outlook on the future for reproductive care? I think that the, the, the crisis has accelerated a whole series of processes that were actually already underway. I'm thinking, for example, of telemedicine. The state of emergency has led telemedicine to be the first way in which non-urgent healthcare services are provided today. And this goes hand in hand with uh, uh, the development of uh, new technology for uh, smartphones, uh, for example, such as medical uh, application. In our own sector, telemedicine has been fundamental and is fundamental now to follow our patients and not to make them feel uh, abandoned. In infertility treatment, uh, well, we see everyday patients moving from one region to another one. That's very usual. From this point of view, telemedicine saves money and time. And uh, I believe that this approach to medicine will also remain in the post-COVID period. Expanding this concept, uh, I think that in this phase where it is very, very important, it is imperative to minimize the presence of patients in the clinic, clinicians will tend to simplify procedures. I'm thinking, for example, uh, to the simplification of the diagnostic workflow for infertility, simplification of the ovarian stimulation protocols, follicular monitoring or endometrial preparation to the uh, embryo transfer. All this simplification can lead to a modification of our clinical practice that probably would be uh, maintained even after uh, the COVID. And more generally, as already said, I think that it is uh, uh, precisely from a situation like this that I remain personally convinced that the healthcare system must be universalistic. We know that SARS-CoV-2 affects and kills more among 
sick people, elderly, the global lockdown and the silencing of all known essential human activities will also have uh, profound and lasting consequences for our social network, in particular for lonely people, for the elderly, for the last, for the homeless, for the poor. That is exactly for the most vulnerable people to the virus. I mean, poor people now have on one side the virus and on the other side lockdown. That means very often unemployment. So the universal health care will provide for urgent care for everybody, for all citizens. It's just a matter of equity and equality during a global crisis. In the next months, all Western countries will face a deep economical crisis. And since infertility treatments are expensive, a reduced access to the IVF care may be expected. From this point of view, treatment of infertility must be considered an essential health treatment that all national health systems should probably economically support, especially during a crisis. As an expert in your field, what do you feel you've learned through this experience? You know, at the time of the uh, Second World War, Winston Churchill said, Comet the Howard, Comet the Man. The idea that the right leaders will come out during times of crisis. For many leaders across the world, the Howard has now come again with the COVID 19 outbreak. This is very, very true for our administrators, our politicians, who are going to take fundamental, relevant, historical decisions. Looking at our own activity, we are doctors. It is not easy giving good advice in this challenging period. The best advice for my young collaborators, young doctors, is first of all, to educate ourselves on the COVID-19. I mean, uh, as doctors, our information cannot come from the media. We have to study. We need scientific articles. Things are nowadays changing very quickly, almost on a daily basis. So we should be adaptive and flexible. In these days, what people are asking for is safety. So when leading a group, a project, a program or a clinic, we must take care of the safety of our collaborators. We must communicate that we take care about their health and that we are working to keep them safe. The key word here is communication, communication, communication. We must communicate with the team even more than before the crisis. We must be realistic, but optimistic and positive. Communication must be formally, but also informally. Your colleagues and collaborators will remember for a long time how they were treated by you and the decisions you took during this crisis. Is there anything that you wish that you had known sooner? Oh, well, well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I can remember at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, reproductive medicine doctors, uh, we were worried about the possibility of vertical transmission of the virus from the mother to the fetus. We had very, very little news in those days, just coming from some uh, case series published in China. Our main information were based on uh, previous experience with SARS and MERS, which were in some ways uh, reassuring regarding this aspect. 
Anyway, the experience now is accumulating and the guidelines of all the professional societies uh, have somehow convinced us that the risk of vertical transmission of the virus is probably very, very, very low. It must be said, however, that there is still a lot of information that is missing, for example, information uh, related to the possible effects of the virus during the first or second trimester. We do not have sufficient information on the teratogenicity of the virus. We still have to wait some months to have uh, this evidence. Dr. Lamarca, thank you so much for taking time out and joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeffrey.